Well, my presentation today is about both vulnerability and adaptation uh, in Vietnam. And I've got a number of co-authors uh, for this presentation who are based in Vietnam as well. Uh, we've got a number of ongoing studies. I'm going to present some data from one of them, um, looking primarily at household level decisions in terms of adaptation, trying to determine which households are more vulnerable than others, which households are more likely to be able to take adaptation measures than others. Um, because ultimately, a lot of the things that we've been talking about over the last day and a half, although we're talking about global processes and global scales, in fact, a lot of the on-the-ground adaptation that's going to have to take place is going to be at country and sub-country levels. So I'm using Vietnam essentially as a example, even though a lot of the things that I'll be talking about are quite specific to Vietnam, um, I think it's a very emblematic case study which tells us a lot about how other poor developing countries may have to deal with the vulnerabilities and adaptation possibilities that are brought about by global climate change. So for the research that we're doing in Vietnam, we essentially are trying to understand what the current state of knowledge in terms of vulnerability and adaptation is. Um, so we're doing field studies in different parts of the country focusing on trying to assess the localized vulnerability. Uh, it's great to do global maps, global scales, where sea level is going to be uh, impacting uh, different areas, but a lot of it comes down to the people actually living in these areas. What are they going to be able to do? What sort of decisions are they going to be able to make? Uh, and one of the fundamental premises of our research project is that populations, particularly in poor developing countries, have had to deal with weather-related impacts for a long time, natural hazards. So they've had to do a certain degree of adaptation already. So there's some things that we can learn from what people have done to deal with natural hazards in the past, and we can use that to project into the future um, how people are going to be able to adapt to larger-scale changes that are, that are forecasted. Uh, and finally, parts of our project are looking at the institutional frameworks that allow people to make adaptation decisions. To what degree are households given freedom? Uh, to what degree do households have the economic means, the policy means, to make adaptation decisions? To what degree are they essentially uh, acted upon by higher level policy authorities as well? So we're really using Vietnam as a case study to try to understand all of these different types um, of challenges. So a quick overview, I'm going to show you some of the forecasted impacts for Vietnam. We're, our team are not modelers, we're using other people's um, uh, forecasts for these, so I'm going to go through them rather quickly, but just give you an indication of what some of the forecasted impacts for Vietnam are going to be. Um, and I think Vietnam is a, a very good, if extreme, case study because it has so many different regional variation. Uh, for one, it's a country that has a very long coastline, so more than 2,000 kilometers of coastline. So obviously sea level rise is going to be a serious impact. Um, but beyond that, there's highland mountainous areas in the north where flash floods, storms and droughts are all forecasted. Uh, the Red River Delta, one of the major rice producing areas of the country, uh, is going to be increasingly vulnerable to more frequent, more intense hurricanes and storms, bringing floods, water inundation, uh, storm surges, as well as sea level rise. The central coast of Vietnam, uh, similarly impacted by st storms, floods, uh, flash floods as well. And then the Mekong Delta uh, in the southern part of the country, also a major rice producing region, uh, a lot of it for export. Uh, they too are going to be subjected to increasing numbers of flood, increasing intensities of floods, um, and as well as um, droughts in the dry season. 
So Vietnamese colleagues uh, in the Vietnam Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology are trying to do some downscaled uh, weather forecasting, climate forecasting. Uh, and one of the things that they're predicting in terms of what we're going to be looking for in the next 50 to 100 years are going to be obviously changes in precipitation patterns. This is going to have a big impact uh, in primarily agricultural areas. So there's going to be increased rain uh, during rainy season. Uh, there's a very strong monsoon in, in both north and south of Vietnam. So there's going to be increased precipitation uh, in the northern parts uh, of the, the country as well as in the Mekong Delta during the rainy season. There's going to be decreases, though, in some of the, the coastal areas in terms of the rainy season. In terms of the dry season, there's going to be decreases overall in terms of the dry season. So the dry season is essentially going to be longer and drier uh, into the future, according to most of the forecasts. So that's one thing which people are going to have to deal with. Sea level rise, which we've heard a lot about today. Um, these are some maps that are recently produced by the International Center for Environmental Management, a consulting firm in uh, Hanoi, and they've been looking essentially at just mapping where uh, potential inundation zones would be based on uh, current elevation and the blue areas are places that would be inundated with a one meter sea level rise. The red areas are two meters and then the gold uh, and yellow are three and four meters. So you can see particularly in the Mekong Delta there in the south large large areas um, of blue and we're talking about a population in the Mekong Delta um, of approximately 15 to 20 million people right now um, that's going to be obviously growing into the future. So we're talking about a large um, population impact um, and potential displacement as we just heard in the, the previous um, presentation. So one of the things that our team is trying to come to grips with is do we have the tools to really understand social vulnerability right now? Um, and so one of the things we're looking at as, uh, are the, the measures that a lot of different studies are using to try to figure out who's vulnerable uh, on different scales. So a, a very widely used measure of vulnerability is the one put forth by Turner et al. Um, in 2003, which basically takes three dimensions of vulnerability. So it's ex people who have the most exposure to particular climate events, um, those that are most sensitive, and those that have the weakest capacity to respond. And so these measures have essentially been taken up in the, the IPCC reports, particularly the working group to uh, work on adaptation. Uh, and these three measures of exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity are what most people tend to use when talking about uh, understanding vulnerability. But the problem is, once you try to downscale and you try to figure out, well, what's going to be my proxy for each of those three things, you get very different studies and very different indicators uh, according to who's doing the study. So these things like sensitivity is often measured by things like uh, human resources, so literacy rates, levels of education, life expectancy, mortality rates, uh, levels of infrastructure, the quality of housing, levels of road development, kilometers uh, of roads, and so forth. Sometimes it's economic metrics. It's the market GDP per capita, income per capita. Sometimes it's Gini indexes measuring uh, income inequality. Um, sometimes it's physical vulnerability primarily. So this would be geographic location, things like food security and entitlements, types of ecosystems, water resources, and so forth. So essentially, depending on, on which proxies for vulnerability you're using, you get different outcomes in terms of who's most vulnerable. Um, so when people try to say, well, what are, who are the most vulnerable countries in the aggregate, it becomes a very difficult 
uh, process, although a lot of people have tried to do it. And uh, the map up there is, is a, an attempt by Columbia University researchers uh, to try to do global uh, sensitivity assessments. But one of the things that I think it's really important to remember and, and was pointed out in the IPCC, the fourth assessment report, is that vulnerability varies considerably across all socioeconomic groups. Um, so it raises a lot of really important questions about how we use different proxy measurements to understanding vulnerability. And we need to be very critical about when we use some and when we don't use others. Um, so at the country level, different countries are essentially jockeying for different measurements. So for Vietnam, for example, Vietnam is going to go to Copenhagen uh, in two months and make the argument that adaptation financing should be based primarily on absolute numbers of population that are going to be affected by the most direct uh, climate impact hazards, particularly sea level rise. Because when it's measured in that way, Vietnam comes up in one of the top five countries in terms of sheer absolute numbers of population. Now, as we just heard in the previous uh, presentation, a lot of small island states, the, the percentage of people who are going to be impacted by sea level rise is much higher. In Vietnam, it may only be 20% of the population. In Tuvalu and uh, Nauru and other places, it'll be nearly 100, 100%. But Vietnam is going to make the argument that in terms of sheer numbers of people, um, they've got 20 to 30 million versus less than a million in some of the small island nations. So what you use as your metric becomes very important and it becomes very political. So it's important to be very clear um, about this because there's no single index um, that everyone agrees upon as, as to being a good index of vulnerability. So some of the challenges that come out of this, in addition to having to, to pick different types of proxy measurements, is where do we focus our attention? Um, and the assumption in the literature to date on uh, vulnerability, particularly in poor developing countries, has been primarily on rural agricultural populations. Um, and the assumption has been that those rural populations are more vulnerable and that the poorer populations are more vulnerable because they're more dependent on agriculture and they generally have lower levels of development. But there's been an increase in urban-specific studies over the last few years, and I think this has been very important. And they clearly state that a lot of cities themselves are facing major vulnerabilities, and they affect large numbers of people, particularly large numbers of urban poor. Um, and this is particularly the case for Asia. Large coastal Asian megacities are going to be very vulnerable to all sorts of climate impacts, um, and they're very much understudied. So one of the things that one of our, our small sub-projects is looking at is comparing Ho Chi Minh City to Bangkok in terms of vulnerability and adaptation possibilities in both areas, um, and how different um, attention needs to be paid, not just to the urban fabric itself, but also urban-rural linkages, such as the population displacements that we heard about uh, in the previous uh, presentation. So for Ho Chi Minh City in particular, uh, it's a very, very uh, perilous scenario uh, in a four-degree world. Um, it's a very fast-growing area, about 3% population growth per year. Just in 2020, it's projected to have a population of 10 million. Um, there are a number of climate impacts. It is uh, an area right on uh, the South China Sea. It's about 60 kilometers inland, and it's protected by, you can see there's this purple area down in the, the lower right-hand corner, and that is a large area of mangroves, um, which serves a very good purpose of protecting from uh, storm surges, but is under increasing development pressure. So sea level rise is a potential impact. The city is already subjected to uh, regular flooding through existing coastal tides. So sea level rise could potentially lead to flooding of up to 71% of the land area of the city 
and 62% of the population. Uh, this is in a four degree scenario at 2100. Okay? So there's an increase in urban temperatures, urban heat island effects, uh, potentially more typhoons as well. So one of the things that one of our projects is trying to figure out is trying to look at both physical vulnerability, so the communities that are in low-lying areas, um, and a lot of people are making maps like you see up here trying to assess um, what percentage of population are in low-lying areas and what are not. And you can see the dark purple um, are the places with the highest percentage of people um, potentially being subject to flooding. So outside of a small core of the city, flooding is going to be a, a major impact. There's also the socially vulnerable. There's a lot of unofficial and illegal migrant households in the city. It's estimated about 30% of the population may not have official papers to even be living there. Um, and there's also the future concern that the lower Mekong Delta, the area that had a lot of the blue impact from sea level rise from a previous um, display, um, up to 2 million people in the Mekong Delta may be moving to Ho Chi Minh City by 2050, and that may increase um, much higher uh, much more quickly uh, by 2100. So we've got some serious impacts ahead for Ho Chi Minh City that are very understudied. Similarly, in the Red River Delta, our team has also been looking at vulnerability there as well. And we've been trying to figure out things like um, the impacts of severely damaging floods. They've increased over time. Uh, the graph on the, the, the left shows the number of flood events um, that are considered to be very damaging to property um, over the past century. And you can see they've increased over time. Uh, on the right-hand side, the graph shows the actual number of days um, of severely impacted flooding. So these are inundation days, which have also gone up as well. And then the bottom figures give you some indication that just in the last uh, short time period that we have data for, 94 to 2003, so less than 10 years, uh, when we compare that back to the years of 76 to 93, a longer time period, in terms of the numbers of deaths, the number of loss of property and so forth, um, it's actually uh, pretty major, pretty significant. Uh, and I see on death it actually should be 8,000, 8,530 people. Um, so damages in the last nine years alone from flooding in the Red River Delta have been almost $3 billion. So this is, you know, with eight-tenths of a degree of climate increase, um, let alone uh, a four-plus world. So one of the things that we decided to look at as part of our team was there was a 20-year flood event in the year 2008 uh, in the Red River Delta. And I know the map's hard to, to see, but basically red areas are areas that are underwater um, right after this flood event, which was in November of 2008. And we decided to look at two different areas to try to figure out um, what the vulnerabilities were to these 20-year floods. So one of the things which I mentioned in terms of vulnerability um, proxies has often been wealth, that richer people are more likely to be able to um, be less vulnerable to climate damages, more likely to be able to uh, adapt and recover. So our research is trying to figure out if that's true or not, and so we've done household surveys. Uh, we have nearly 300 done so far, um, and we've come up with some pretty interesting findings, which is that, in fact, in, in terms of times of, of, of recovery, it's actually taking the rich longer to recover than the poor, and that's because they have more absolute damages. One of the things that we noticed, though, is that the poor actually have a relative higher amount of damage, and those are represented by the percentages over on the right. So the relative livestock damage, that is the percentage of their income from livestock that was decreased by the flood, poorer folks have essentially twice the income loss um, that richer folks do. 
So you have different types of vulnerability depending on how you look at it. So this is one of the key things that we want to point out with our study that depending on how you measure it, you're going to come up with different people who are most vulnerable and you need to be very cognizant of that. Okay, great. So moving on from vulnerability to adaptation, we are starting to already see adaptation in the Red River Delta in particular. Uh, things like changes in housing style. Uh, in interviews, people directly attribute this to the noticeable climate changes and the increase in flood intensity um, that they've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. So they're moving from the traditional house in front, which is a one-story, to ones that are two-story in the back with storage areas, flat storage areas on the top where you can keep household goods uh, in times of flood. So another thing that our team is also looking at are general national vulnerability trends. And the reason why we're, we're interested in some of these phenomenon is that Vietnam and other developing countries often make the argument that um, they need to continue to develop and get wealthier and able to, to, to get enough money to be able to later adapt to climate changes. Well, a lot of our arguments are showing that the things that they're doing to try to increase their economic growth are making them more vulnerable to these climate changes. So things like loss of mangroves, cutting down mangroves to plant shrimp exports. Um, an increase in exotic uh, water hyacinths, which are clogging a lot of the small canals in the two deltas, exacerbated by overuse of fertilizers for export-oriented rice cropping. Single cropping, uh, rice only, as opposed to in the past people might have done a fish, rice, and vegetable crop that's being replaced. Uh, losses of traditional flood-resistant rice to higher yield varieties, again for export, um, and a lot of uh, loss of supplementary income, small gathering activities, things like crabs, clams, worms that could supplement household income. These species are either dying because of the overuse of pesticides and fertilizers for crop-oriented export, or they're simply being overexploited because common lands are being taken over um, by large farmers for export. So these are all increasing the overall vulnerability profile, and it makes the argument that Vietnam needs to continue down the path of development a little bit less tenuous. A final data that I want to give you some indication that uh, this is preliminary data that we're just now looking at. We wanted to figure out, in terms of adaptation responses, if there's any difference between poor, middle class, and wealthier households. Because again, a lot of people are saying wealthier regions, wealthier households will be more able to adapt to climactic changes. What we're actually finding when we ask people, what have you done to adapt to climate change? Everything from reinforcing your house to building um, roofs for storage to infrastructure investments such as buns and fences, buying boats, planting trees, et cetera, there's very little variation between the poor and the rich, which is a very surprising finding for us. Um, we're, we're just coming to, we're trying to understand why that is um, through more qualitative interviews. But it seems to indicate that just relying on this idea that the wealthier will be able to adapt, therefore we should focus on the poor for adaptation financing, that seems to bring that uh, into question. So to conclude, there are a lot of challenges for this sort of capacity assessment. Um, easy to use indicators to try to figure out who's going to be able to adapt and who's not are very elusive. Um, there's no one-size-fit-all solution. 
Um, they tend to be at a very coarse scale. People who have done this before have used things like human development index rankings, poverty incidents, and so forth, um, but they don't give us the sort of fine-grained analysis that we think we're really going to need if our data from these household surveys is any indication, which is there are a lot of potential vulnerabilities among even wealthy households in localized regions that that adaptation policy is going to have to deal with uh, in some way or another. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much.